Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institution of Engineering Technology. This week's special guest is Sir Julian Young, President of the IET. Julian tells us about his time in the RAF, as well as all about his current role as President. He shares some great advice for those looking for a worthwhile and satisfying career in engineering. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Engineering Stories. I am Alex Michelson, the Head of R&D at Silver Fox. And with me today, I have Nicoletta. Hello, my name is Nicoletta Catalina. I am a second year student on electrical and electronic engineering at the University of Greenwich. And I am also the chair of the IT on campus. Brilliant. And our special guest today is Sir Julian Young, president of the IET. Alex, please call me Julian. I will. I will from now on, I promise. Thanks so much indeed. Nice to see you. So, how's it going as president of the IET? Um, well, um, two months in now, and I have to say every day is flying by. Uh, enjoying it immensely. Um, it's, um, it's everything that I thought it would be. Although, um, I think in the last couple of weeks, we've started to be constrained by what we can and what we can't do in terms of COVID-19, uh, understandably. Um, mm. And so that's just um, put, you know, it's just taking the edge off uh, being able to meet as many people as I would like to have done. Yes, I can imagine. So what you were in the RAF for 40 years, you got to got to be an air marshal. Um, How does that compare to, to being in charge of the IET? Um, well, I think the, the, the things are very different, but um, I mean, one was a, a lifetime career, as it were, and it was my job. And I ha- can't say I actually started it with the thought of ever becoming the president of the IET. In fairness, I think when I started, I'm not actually sure I'd even heard of the IET or what professional engineering institutions uh, do necessarily. Um, but uh, one learns as one goes on that actually uh, to try and take on the role a professional engineer that you need professional engineering institutions to be able to support you um, and to promote what their great profession does. Um, so yes to the Air Force for 40 years, uh, though during that time I did many jobs. Uh, one was as the station commander at RAF Cosford about, uh, golly, 20 years ago now. Oh my golly, I'm getting very old. <laughs> uh, and that is the Defence's Aeronautical Technical Training College. Um, so it was uh, there I developed uh, what I think now is uh, probably a passion for personal and professional development. And that's really got what got me interested in the IET. Uh, so about 12 or so years ago, I had responsibility for the RAF engineer branch and was interested in professional registration as to what it was it could do for us, as it were, inside the military. So I spoke to the IET along with uh, several of the other professional engineering institutions. The IET seemed to be the most responsive at the time and uh, certainly worked. we worked with them to create what we now know as the streamlined application process. That doesn't mean it's an easy in. What it does mean is that uh, most of the people from certainly the Royal Air Force engineer branch don't need to fill out quite so much paperwork to join in as far as the IET has conducted a survey of all the things that we kind of do, the typical jobs. So you can write the Mm. title of the job down, uh, get somebody to sign it to say, you know, yes, you did it and you weren't sacked while you were doing it. You did a pretty good job, as it were. (laughs) But But it takes away filling out about a page and a half of things that you do when, in fact, many of our jobs are very similar. 
So if you're the senior engineer officer on a squadron, for example, whether it's Chinooks, Typhoons, um, large aircraft, A400M, whichever, actually it's pretty much the same job. So if you've kind of if you've uh, scheduled it out once, you laid it all out, you know what it is. People can just put the job title, and that actually shortens the overall process. So that was really good. So then I um, I was asked, as it were, to join the IET membership and professional development board, uh, which I did principally, I have to say, to learn more about how a professional engineering institution works from the inside. So I could take advantage of that for the Royal Air Force and the engineers that uh, I was representing. Um, but that was but the first stepping stone to you know what is now history. So I was elected mm. as a trustee wow. in 2015, and served since then and chaired various committees, uh, all of which you know um, well help one understand how the IET, how any professional engineering institution works. I was elected as vice president and then asked to step up to be a deputy president, which I did for two years, becoming before becoming president. So I did all of that in my RAF time. Uh, I was lucky that I uh, wasn't posted overseas for any of that. I was detached overseas. I didn't always get along to all of the meetings, uh, but the vast majority I was able to. Uh, many of the board of trustees meetings actually start at five o'clock in the afternoon. And if there was something that clearly missed from the day job, you know, you'd make up that time elsewhere, just the same as every other volunteer. Volunteering time comes outside of work time, um, but uh, a good thing. So I'm very proud to have been still uh, or to been an air marshal uh, to uh, to actually become the president and very pleased that the um, you know the records will show that somebody from the Royal Air Force was a president of the IET. Uh, I'm not the first, I'm the second. Uh, in fact, the president back in 1980 uh, was happened to be an RAF air marshal as well. Uh, but I'm proud to be the second and proud to keep on that particular um, tradition, as it were, of being interested in life outside, not just inside the military. Is it is it common for for military, or has it been common for military personnel to become president of the IET, or is it just uh, well? The there's RAF? been. I think the last one was uh, Barry Brooks, who was a Navy Commodore. Um, so it's not it's not common. But it's not also uncommon. Um, again, we're engineers just like anyone else, and indeed worried and concerned, and you know care a lot about about our profession. And I think that um, anyone you know w wanting to help one's own profession add something back, as it were. You know, you show the dedication to one's own profession and put the time and commitment into the organisation. And if you if what what you do is making a sufficient enough difference, then you've got the opportunity of becoming president. Uh, it's a very privileged. I feel very privileged to be the president of the IET uh, for uh, for nine, you know for 2021-22. Um, as I say, it's just a shame that it's hit uh, right at the time that the uh, COVID is ongoing. And in fact, it's uh, constraining certainly some of the things that we would like to do, though. Um, through this particular medium, as we know, the, the virtual world is a wonderful one. And one does have the mm. opportunity of communicating and touching base with people outside. So would you have rather been an air marshal in the RAF or the president of the IET during COVID? Um, well, which, uh, it impacted... Which on challenge both, takes your fancy? It, well, it impacted on both of my professional and indeed my volunteering um, life, as it were. 
in as far as uh, in my last job I had responsibility for acquisition and support of the fixed wing aircraft that the def that defence flies and uh, was leading 2,265 professionals uh, putting to work 3.7 billion pounds of work uh, of money uh, on behalf of the frontline customers in terms of what they wanted and all of a sudden one found oneself doing that from home through a screen now, like any large organisational job, uh, an awful lot of what one does is answering emails and uh, attending meetings and speaking to people. So all of a sudden that became either on the telephone or via virtual means. Um, it didn't make it as effective from my perspective. And as far as uh, I certainly found some of those meetings more difficult than if, in fact, we had been face-to-face. Uh, -face. And in particular, those meetings where you were speaking to international partners, either in industry uh, or indeed um, colleagues within respective Ministry of Defences across Europe or across in America. In as far as language sometimes can get slightly in the way and certainly being there helps enormously. Uh, to, mm. to make oneself understood. Not quite so difficult when you're speaking to somebody who is fluent in English. And of course, some of our international partners, you know, put us to shame, really, in terms of having a second or third <laughs> language, a great skill. But nonetheless, it is still, I have put, you know, my own personal view is it's still easier, particularly when you're trying to collaborate and solve problems to be able to do that face to face. And so I think the same issues exist, whether indeed one is in the Royal Air Force in one's day job or indeed volunteering through something like the IET. Yeah, we were talking to, to Nick Brown, who's a an engineer at McLaren F1 um, a few weeks ago. And we, I think we all agreed that, especially especially in engineering, those the great ideas that you have come from those little conversations that you have almost, I guess... I guess in the olden days they would have been called water cooler conversations. Um, you know, when you go and get a drink of water and just have a quick conversation with someone, that's when the best, when the best ideas come out. I, I agree. Uh, you know, I would say rubbing. You know, again, whilst we can't do it in COVID times, but you know, rubbing shoulders with people, talking mm. about problems, talking about potential solutions, exploring one's past. Might some of the ideas that you've employed in the past successfully apply in this particular situation to to solve it? Uh, and then, in fact, if you are a senior person in that organisation, not necessarily imposing that solution on the team, because it would be one doesn't always understand all of the detail of the problem. And indeed, it may well be that for good reason, that particular solution, whilst it worked for you in a previous life, as it were, doesn't necessarily work because of some of the detail that some of the team members themselves will know and understand better than you. Uh, but to try and at least talk around it and talk in conceptual terms about what could be applied to resolve this particular issue and take us to the next level. And um, I agree, rubbing shoulders with people, staring at the same whiteboard, scribbles, everybody's got a free speech as it were, everybody can speak and actually wanting to know why some of those people around the table aren't speaking. So really trying to encourage mm. to get the best out of everybody is what we all need to do. And I think that's part of, I think that is part of the story, part of the build-up and make-up of being an engineer. I mean, it's very easy from a stereotypical perspective to say we all would rather be work in a darkened room, pass me the problem under the door, I'll pass you the solution, you know, a couple of hours later. 
Um, that's kind of okay, but it's a wrong stereotype. Whilst we may not be the most personable of people, say, from a stereotype perspective, and again, we can argue about that or debate it, uh, the reality is we work better together. Um, that's the way that I've always worked within teams, and uh, it is the best way of getting getting stuff done. If I just go as far as to say it's the only way of getting things done. You know, if I work, if I think back to my life in the Royal Air Force, um, you know, no one person can do it all themselves. Um, you need, a, a, you know, everybody around, all with a similar vision, um, similar uh, storyline as to what it is that we've got to get done and people get on and do it. Yeah, I was just uh, saying that um, even though I don't have the experience of a career yet uh, in engineering, I've noticed having online lectures and face-to-face -face lectures, it's easier to engage. So yeah, definitely, I think working face-to-face -face will have better results and easier results, if you wish. I, I think as we look to the future, uh, I'm sure certainly, if I may say, people of your generation will learn, in fact, how to do both uh, better than indeed yeah. I am finding the virtual world. You know, I've had to work hard at it for the last, uh, what, 22 months now. Um, and I would say, um, you know, I've still got lots to learn. I think people who are who are coming into the profession, into any profession at this moment, will understand the you know the benefits that can be driven from virtual working, and of course real time working uh, alongside people, and hopefully get the get the best out of both. We're hoping. We're hopeful. I yeah, really hope we will manage to get through uni with a decent degree and actually an engineering degree, not only an online. Well, I wish, you every, I wish you every success, Nicoletta. Thank you. Um, so, because you said you were in uh, the RAF force and then a volunteer and the IET president, that's a, volun a volunteering position. How do you manage to have time for both? So, or how did you manage to have time for both? I think anyone reaching the top of any organization will have had to work very hard and put a lot of hours and a lot of dedication into their uh, into their job. Um, my wife would describe me as a workaholic um, and probably the work-life balance hasn't always been as good um, as indeed I had hoped it would have been uh, in years gone by. Uh, but uh, you know the simple point is if you really enjoy something and if you really believe it's worthwhile, then you will find time and make time for it. So uh, as I described earlier, the IET meetings, many of them start at five o'clock in the uh, afternoon and will run through to half past seven, quarter to eight. So that's outside of one's core working time. But will I have been working on emails up until you know a few seconds before it started? And will I probably start work emails immediately after it? Yes, of course. Um, I'm lucky that I'm not a person who needs an awful lot of sleep. So I've not slept in my career much, uh, but I've worked hard. And again, it comes back to if you think it's important, you'll find the time. And I believe that these things are important. And for me personally, it's always felt as if one is adding something back to the profession that has helped me um, get to, you know, deliver the things that I have wanted to in my professional life. I mean, we've, we've had quite a lot of discussion on this podcast about work-life balance. And I can think back to, to Amelia Gould, 
work-life balance doesn't exist you just do what's in front of you you get it done and then you can move on to the next thing whether it be balancing your kids getting to kids things or getting the work done do you think that's do you think that's changed during covid i mean you had a a very high-ranking job in the raf um during covid and now you're the iet president do you think it's got easier to balance work and life um well I think or has it what, got harder i think what COVID, i think the biggest difference uh, away from the advantages and disadvantaging of whether you're rubbing shoulders with people or speaking to them in a virtual means i think the biggest difference is actually taking travel time away um, now i've been fortunate um, certainly in the last few years of my service career of actually being if i was going somewhere uh, quite often i would be driven and i would have my laptop open in the back seat of the car continually through to the early hours of the morning or until the battery went flat uh, working on you know keep you know keeping my work output going so i have been uh, very lucky but of course um, you know the, without the travel time what it has allowed is people to spend that time either with their families or doing more work or probably a mix of both i think it is very easy when one's working at home to actually to allow the work uh, lot, home life to become blurred uh, I suppose they probably have felt blurred for my entire life, so that's not particularly different for me. Um, what one does is is hopefully do the best one can for one's family, and in one's head, I suppose what you know the best one can do for one's family is actually is actually work hard, uh, gain recognition, uh, gain promotion, and perhaps be able to. Um, offer something back to your family by way of recompense uh, and so I suppose I and many other people I'm sure will look at actually doing you know doing well or working hard at in one's job is actually benefiting the family uh, allowing them perhaps a few more luxuries in life or opportunities more importantly for the children it's down to opportunities it's not luxuries so you know if there's a club or a society that they want to join if it's they want to go on a rugby tour you know being able perhaps to afford those things um, but not always perhaps always being there for every um, nativity play although I used to try uh, but I wouldn't say that I was always successful and neither probably would my own children three of them if in fact they were in on this call in fact they tease me at times these days to say dad how do you know that because I don't remember you being there um, they also, after I become a bit gloomy, after about the third time they've said they've said that, they said we are only teasing, Dad. Yeah, I mean, my my dad obviously uh, ran his own business, still runs his own business. This one that I'm sitting in at, at the moment, uh, and so yeah, it was similar. I mean, he worked all hours of of the waking day, either looking after us and getting to to plays or to sports days etc but then like you say almost in the car working um in you know at, before dinner after dinner it's it's looking looking back on it i don't i i honestly don't know how he balanced it but he managed to I, and, and i don't think that it's um i don't think that's typical i don't think that's just um sorry uh engineers alone clearly i mean that that's kind of everyone if um you know, there there are some people who are, are very driven by work and gain a huge amount of 
satisfaction from their job. Not everybody does. Not everybody wants to. So some people have got bigger lives outside of work than perhaps they have inside work. Uh, I've never taken up golf um, because I think that playing golf, and I'll say it out loud, I think is quite a selfish pastime. In as far as it's, you take, it, hmm. you need an awful amount of time, as it were, to be able to be good at it. And for all of that time, you're away from the children. So I've never had any massive great hobbies that have taken me away from either the family or from work. Sometimes I look back and wish that I'd mm. you know, tried at sailing a bit more. I can sail a dinghy, but again, I sail a dinghy with the children or have done with the children in the years gone by. So I've done you know, the hobby kind of things, but related to the family, whether that's walking, walking the dog with the family, taking the kids to football, taking... Uh, taking my daughter to hockey and, you know, being that very noisy dad shouting from the sidelines, you know, for her to pass the ball or to the team to do better. Um, so I suppose my entire focus has been work. And I see the IET as being work related because that clearly relates to my engineering profession um, or indeed mm. with the family. I'm blessed that I have a truly wonderful, marvellous partner, my wife, who um, has given up her career, as it were, to follow me around the country. We say follow the flag, as it were, follow the military from job to job. And that means that uh, she is a nurse, thank goodness, has always been able, when needed and when she wants to, to be able to find employment. But she's never had the career um, that she could have had if she'd been in one location for a long period of time. Uh, but I'm very lucky. So she's been an absolute wonderful mother, a wonderful wife and has you know kept our whole domestic uh, scene going um, when I'm you know find myself not there brilliant well, well done to your wife oh, uh, can, I, can I give her a shout out her name is Helen <laughs> Silver Fox proudly supports engineers with all their cable wire and pipe labeling requirements the Fox in a Box thermal printer has the ability to print a whole range of thermal labels with one software, one printer and one ribbon, saving loads of time for the engineers out there in the field. For more information, contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call on plus 44 01707 373727. I have always thought there is a time um, in our lives where we actually need to work hard so that we can have advantages later. Um, you've just confirmed that, so I'm, I'm going to keep that thought. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting point, Nicoletta. And in fact, um, in jobs uh, that where I actually had specific responsibility for the engineer branch uh, and our training in the way that I described how I got involved with the IAT in the first place, um, I have met with all of the engineering officers coming through their training before they hit the front line. And, you know, one of the things which I used to say to them all is, um, you know, it's probably going to be more than 37 and a half hours a week. This truly is a way of life rather than a job in itself, particularly mm. if one is on operations and you can be at the far flung corners of the globe. Um, you're going to have to work hard. People are going to expect you to be there whenever is required and for you to work oh, hard. Sure. I can but say it will be the most satisfying feeling in the world when, in fact, you are part of a delivery outcome 
that has made such a massive difference. And in the operational space, it can truly be the difference between, uh, you know, between life and no, and death. Really, sounds a bit sounds a bit dramatic, but it certainly can be. I've also said that um, you'll come at, you know, you, you can step off the escalator at any point, uh, but once you've done it, it's really really hard to catch up again. So you yeah. do have Once to put, you lose momentum. You, yeah, exactly. You've got to put the time in. And particularly against in an organization where there is a certain up or out uh, within the services. So if one doesn't get to a particular rank by a particular length of service, then you may be asked to leave. You know, it's hard to catch up. And in fact, if one finds yeah. oneself, you know, in the same rank for a large number of years, then your overall full potential is never going to be realized because, um, you know, up until quite recently, uh, everybody in the Air Force or everybody in the military, actually, bar a very few, would actually uh, be asked to, well, you would resign, at, would resign, you'd leave at 55 years old. Yeah. And so if one stayed in one's rank for 15 years, let's say the reality is you're going to run out of time to get to the more senior ranks and therefore your full potential will not be realized um, and that's a shame for the organization and that could well be a shame for you too and therefore i think that is similar in many respects you know we've all got to retire at some point and if we work our way back and one actually doesn't put a huge amount of effort in uh, over a longish period of time let's say just treading water um, doing something else then the reality is uh, you're probably not going to be the CEO or the chairman of that organization because you just don't have enough time, enough experience. Uh, the reality is it's not it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Well, what made you choose the RAF and not Navy or Army? Okay. Um, well, first of all, uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and I remember going along to see my careers master, probably as we were choosing then O-levels, now GCSEs, and him asking me, what is it that, uh, you know, I thought I wanted to do? I said, I haven't got the faintest. He said, well, tell me more about your outdoor life than I know. I know you're at school, but tell me about outdoors. And, I, you know, the, the points I made, how do you find your, how do you spend your time? I spent my time dismantling my bicycle and putting it back together again, uh, fixing other people's bikes and helping my stepfather keep his very old car on the road, whether it was taking the engine out, clutches, gearboxes, uh, whether it was bits of the suspension or something. And I found that's actually what I was quite good at and I didn't, and I quite liked doing. So I studied woodwork for O-Level and then went on to do design and technology, clearly along, alongside maths and physics for A-Levels. Uh, but in simple terms, what he said is, oh, I think you ought to be an engineer. And I thought, oh, I'd like to be an engineer then. That's exactly what I'll do. The reality is I didn't really know what kind of engineering. Uh, my father worked for British Airways and I spent an afternoon with him one time in my early teens at Heathrow in, and he was a propulsion technician. Um, actually gained his skills in the Royal Air Force but left long before I could remember. He left when I was about two years old. Uh, he and discipline didn't really get on very well, so he left, but but took up and continued the profession that he had with British Airways. And I remember seeing a, an RB211 on the test bed 
and the whole building was shaking this thing was so powerful and just it was sheer complexity of it all and to think aircraft in those days had four of these things on the wing I just thought this is what I want to do I want to be involved in aircraft engineering um, and then so being aircraft engineering I guess it was going to be the Royal Air Force though I didn't really know that then I was the first person in my family to stay on for A-levels when you didn't have to, when most people would have left school at 16. And I was the first person in my family to go to university. And I knew I wanted to study engineering. I didn't think that my parents honestly would be able to afford or help me at university. So I thought I'll get sponsorship. So I wrote to 11 different companies to ask them if indeed they'd sponsor me to go to university. Uh, Rolls-Royce wrote back and said no. Uh, most of them didn't respond at all. And I was in the fortunate enough position actually to be offered a place by both British Airways and the Royal Air Force uh, to do the course that I did, which was air transport engineering at the City University in London. Uh, now it's a college as part of the University of London, but then it was a separate university. Uh, the course I wanted to do and um, I do not know now to this day why I chose the Royal Air Force, uh, but I did. And looking back, I have not regretted a single day. That did sound a bit like, do you remember, it was, if I think it's still active, the advert for the Royal Navy. If you can fix a bike, you can fix yeah. a car. And if you no, can no, fix a car. The, those, that particular sequence of Royal Navy uh, technician and engineer adverts are really good. I mean, really good. Yeah. You know. Um, it yeah. definitely reminded me of that. Yeah. I mean, those ones in particular, I think it was, you know, I can't remember now where the city was, but, you know, born in Leicester, made in the Navy. I mean, really yeah, good, really one. good, really good adverts. But same same sort of deal. Um, so it gave me the opportunity to do what I wanted to do. I was sponsored, uh, bursary it would be called these days, to go to university. Um, it was a thin sandwich. Uh, so that meant we, there aren't such things as thin sandwich these days. The nearest you get to it now is uh, the new kind of degrees, the uh, degree apprenticeships. So I spent uh, four and a half years at uni, uh, two years of that uh, actually with my industrial sponsor. For some of us on the course, it was British Airways. Uh, for me, it was the Royal Air Force. So I worked as a tradesman on aircraft for two years in six monthly blocks. So it was two and a half years of academics, two years of um, uh, vocational training, industry placement on a six-month rotation and without a shadow of a doubt made me a better engineer at the end of it because uh, I at least have got some knowledge of indeed what the tradesmen and ground crew were doing when I then came out and was responsible for managing it all. You know, I had been there, done it, been there in the hangar at four in the morning, servicing the aircraft, helping tow them out, you know, strapping pilots in, um, turn around servicing them, hanging weapons on the underside of them, etc., and, you know, launching them off. And it was just, uh, you know, I just, I smile thinking about it now. And I was 19 at the time. It was just so much fun. Brilliant. Um, so you've worked, you were in the RAF for, for 40 years. Yeah. Presumably saw a lot of, a lot of aircraft came across your desk. Uh, what, did you have a favourite? Oh, gosh, yeah, but, I think um, I think it's typical of almost any person you ask a similar question to, is it will be the first aircraft they ever worked on is the one they loved, uh, particularly yeah. if that aircraft is still in service. And for me, that's the Chinook CH-47, uh, queen of the skies. Uh, the joke within helicopters is fixed wing will never catch on. 
<laughs> I, I mean, the Chinook is, is a pretty amazing, awesome, awesome aircraft. I, I had the, I'd, I'd say the pleasure, the, the terror, of, of sitting on a balcony in uh, North Devon, um, and having a Chinook flying at me. That was quite, quite terrifying. Actually, I don't know what they were doing. Um, hope, I'm assuming they took a wrong turn, but. Um, I doubt it was it was quite spectacular. Well, again, the, the the joy of helicopters from an operational perspective is that you know they do a lot of exciting stuff, uh, flying low level, dropping people off in you know strange places, strange people, strange places, and they do great things. Uh, either that, or it's underslung load, and indeed it's not just in times of conflict, but actually they do great things, as we saw the Chinook force in the north uh, of England a couple of years ago. Uh, supporting a dam that was in fact falling down with all of the sand and bricks etc that they brought to shore that up so it's great for humanitarian purposes as well but from an engineering perspective the great thing about helicopters is they often deploy in ones twos and threes and fours whereas fast jet squadrons you'll end up with 12 um, you know typhoon on a squadron and normally the whole squadron will deploy so the senior engineer officer the junior engineer officer the warrant officer, the flight sergeant, everyone will go and you've got the same management structure. When you are deploying uh, ones and twos of aircraft, you end up sending the junior engineer officer, me, on my first tour uh, with a group of people, a few spares, a couple of, you know, some air crew and off you go for a week or two weeks, uh, sometimes abroad, some wherever it may be. And you are suddenly responsible for making the aircraft work getting all of the people motivated up whatever time they need to, get it done, fixed late at night. And, uh, you know, the, the amount of experience that one can learn, I think, on a helicopter squadron, a support helicopter squadron in the military, is just immense. And again, I really saw it as finishing my apprenticeship um, of actually learning what mixing, engineering people and the task, uh, you know, what, what you really have to do to deliver it. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I again, I, I just wish I could have my time round again, in all honesty. It was just wonderful. And do you have a least favourite, as, as we're here? Oh, least favourite? Well, that, you know, during my time in the last four and a half years, when I had responsibility for, for acquiring and supporting all of the aircraft, uh, I can honestly tell you that I didn't really have a least favourite. Um, I had those that perhaps I didn't spend as much time with because they didn't have any major crises at the time I was <laughs> responsible. So I think uh, C-17 is an aircraft, I wouldn't call it my least favourite, but I would probably say it's the one that I had least to do with. We led a couple of contracts uh, during my time in the last four and a half years for its support activity and also its training activity, but it never they were never crises. And when you're sitting on top of an organisation that's spending that amount of money looking after 63 different projects across all of the aircraft types, it would be fair to say that there are the odd crisis or two. And those are the ones that you become much more embedded with. They're not, they're not unpopular as a result of it. Actually, you get to learn yeah. more about those aircraft and the contractual arrangements and what the modification is or the... Uh, um, uh, enhancement or capability upgrade that you're trying to put onto the aircraft uh, and every time you you know you learn more you like it even more because you you feel again that's the problem you've got to solve so it's all about solving problems if there's no problems there's almost no fun 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I I'd agree with that. I think I think engineers are, are uniquely placed to I'll, I'll be careful how I word this fight fires and I, I think I think most engineers if they sit doing a day job doing the same thing over and over again they'll get quite bored I don't know whether that's a personality type of engineers or whether that's a complete stereotype if so uh, my retraction will be on the back page but I think most most engineers like like it when it goes a bit wrong um, I don't disagree in terms of there's never much more there's never more fun than the way I describe when in fact you are solving problems. But um, I've always believed that engineers in the military are made up of three different you know types of job as it were. The first one is clearly being a professional engineer and making decisions on airworthiness, and this is an area where you really don't need crises. Um, you know, hmm. you've got to do it as safely as you can. Uh, the reality is in those situations you do have to often think quite fast and on your feet and it's your own knowledge and expertise of many years of experience and of those around you who can advise you that will help you make the right decision. Uh, the second thing is being a military commander uh, because ultimately again as an engineer officer you have responsibilities for those who officially are your subordinates. Uh, many of them actually will probably be more experienced and more knowledgeable than you but that's the rules of the game as it were. And the third one is uh, being a project manager of actually making sure you've got all the resources in the right place. You're conducting the planning accordingly to make sure that not only can you fly those aircraft today, but you can do so safely tomorrow, next week, the next month and next year. And so some of those uh, fires are where you've actually got the third aspect of your job wrong and you've not put in place enough planning uh, for things to turn out in the way that uh, you might have hoped. So sometimes, yes, there are fires to put out, and that is, and that can be very exciting. Um, it's pretty dull when you're the person who lit the match. Yeah, super. What is it? Superman. Superman syndrome. There, there uh, is yeah, a, something there along is those a... lines. But I mean, you know, if again, you know, solving problems is a great thing. You should, you ought not to have been the cause of the problem in the first place, because I think if you do, you're going to lose your reputation pretty soon. Yeah, I think, I think I think that's fair. Um, you've said about your favorite experience. Do you have any experience where it was like the most challenging one, or maybe the scariest, or when you thought, "Oh my God, this is going really bad. <laughs> How um, do I fix this?" I don't know about really bad. Um, I think daunting. Um, I remember one particular role. Um, in fact, I, I gained promotion to Air Vice Marshal on the back of it, um, and it was to undertake a rapid piece of work to try and save yet more money from the defence budget. And um, so I was at very short notice moved from the job that I was in to take up a new role, and it was to help inform the oncoming defence review that we were having in 2010. Uh, so I got into this job uh, in the late summer of 2009 and was asked, I was given eight weeks basically to try and work out how we could save several hundreds of millions of pounds and not just one off, it was supposed to be a run rate saving. And um, I through, again, through emails, through no personal exchange, had got a team as it were of seven people to work with to do this. 
And I remember pitching up on the first day, being so busy in my last job, trying to finish things off early, that I hadn't really given any opportunity, I hadn't had the opportunity of indeed preparing as well as I might have liked to have done, got there and they all kind of looked at me, walk in and then go, right, so what do you want us to do? And the reality is I didn't really know what it was and we were going to do and how we were going to do it. Uh, so I told them some stories of some change work that I'd been involved in in the past and actually asked again around the team. We've, we've certainly, we certainly quickly bonded as a, as a really strong team. Uh, albeit I was the leader of it. We all understand that bit. Everyone's there to support it nonetheless. And uh, we worked out a plan of action from that afternoon, which survived probably about 24 hours. Then we thought about it that again and we came up with another plan. And uh, within six weeks, we were presenting how we thought we could save £369 million pounds run rate. Um, and, uh, and that was, cut a long story short, accepted. Uh, it was ex it was really hard work um, making oneself really quite unpopular by suggesting that more change could be applied to areas where there were already significant amounts of change happening, changing processes, changing procedures in a way that we ourselves had never done. So we were really trying to take on board brand new ideas um, on all of them, though, we thought that we were being relatively conservative. So if one looked at best practice that was going on outside in terms of commerciality, for example, they would have tried to have made savings of 5 or 10% in our particular situation. Uh, we, at the end, I think, made 1% or 2% of changes, uh, which, again, at the time was not easy to bear um, because of the unknown quantity often of the military output that's required from those contracts. But nonetheless, we were able to determine that better ways could be done. We could do things differently and save money and hopefully not take away operational capability whilst we were doing that. It was it was quite scary, I guess, as I walked in that office on the first day to be confronted with these people all looking at me saying, so what are we going to do? We literally had no idea what we were going to do. Uh, but um, that, that particular job lasted about 10 months in all. So we came came up with it and then we had to hang around, as it were, whilst indeed we uh, convinced others of how, of more not, not just the what to do, but a lot of the then how you might do it. Um, an enjoyable job looking back from an experience perspective was, you know, I gained so much from that job. I learned so much from that job. But I have to say, when I think back, I still end up with goosebumps how difficult it was. By two, you said two thousand nine, you're in a, a top top job in the RAF, and and now you're you're the top man at the IET. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether you remember, but during but during Donald Trump's presidency, um, the BBC created a little new segment called the First One Hundred Days. Oh yeah. Um, which which basically reviewed Donald Trump's first one hundred days, and then continuously it's still called First One Hundred Days. Uh, so you've been in. For two and a half months, I think. What, what's the what's the plan for the for the other? How many days have we got left? I don't know. Okay. Uh, well, um, uh, you know, the the, the the post of president is twelve months, uh, and I'd be the first to say only twelve months. Um, there are uh, goodness me, uh, sixteen trustees. There are twenty seven council members. All of those people are volunteers who have been elected. 
primarily into those posts, as it were, in terms of the good governance of the IET, which is a very large charitable organisation that needs an awful lot of work for, you know, just to keep the whole organisation going and to stick within the rules. Uh, the reality is that there is a chief executive officer of the IET, um, and he, it's a he at the moment, has 670 full-time team members. So it's a very large organisation. Um, I'm not foolish enough to think that any one person, regardless of the lovely title, privileged title of being president, is going to make you know, a massive turnaround difference, if indeed one were needed, uh, within an organisation such as the IET, doing principally what it does, which is to uh, professionally register engineers, uh, whether it's Eng Tech, whether it's Incorporated Engineer, ICT Tech or Chartered Engineer, that's their job. And also spending a huge amount of effort, and none of us would disagree with this, inspiring the next generation through STEM activity. Um, so the IET runs what I think is still the country's largest STEM activity in First League Lego. Um, you know, that's the largest and that's just but one of the many projects that indeed they're engaged in. So it's not as if one person needs to make all of those changes. And I accept the point that you made and neither does the President of the United States of America. Uh, I suppose the, the reality he, he is, uh, or she in the future, uh, are members of political parties with a particular mandate. My mandate, I think, was to come in and to continue providing good governance for the IET and to do I end up putting a bit of my own personality into it? Yes, of course. Uh, and there indeed are, you know, I like to think that I do that by uh, one of the points that you may have read about is shining a spotlight on technicians. Uh, I've already spoken about my life in the Royal Air Force, where indeed I worked alongside some truly uh, incredibly well-trained and highly motivated women and men who are technicians in the Royal Air Force. Um, you know, they are by the largest they are the largest majority of the engineering profession uh, is the technicians who do all the hard work. And so I'd like to shine a light on them to see if indeed we can uh, try and get some more of them professionally registered in the years to come. So it's not going to be let's do that in the next two weeks, but try and set up can, what can we do in the next uh, in the next few months that will hopefully see more of them join in the next few years. Um, but you'll also perhaps have seen I have spoken about the important elements for me are four Zs. Uh, I've already mentioned a couple of them, institutionalizing professionalization, uh, operationalizing STEM. Those are givens and what any professional engineering institution is doing. But I think the IET is doing it at a level and a scale that is the largest, certainly in the country. And I'm incredibly proud to be part of an organization that does that. The other, so the other are societal challenges, which are those of our era uh, and that we have to push hard to try and improve. One clearly is repairing our broken planet. And so sustainability and climate change is something into which engineers will in fact in the next few years or con continue the work that they've done over the next few years, but it's gonna have to be faster, it's gonna have to be cheaper, it's gonna have to be better, whatever it is we do to try and do things in the future. Um, and the other one is, uh, again, not ignoring technology, is that if in, of, um, of embedding digitalization into almost everything we do. So improving our overall digital skills, whether that's school children, 
uh, or indeed people who are in the middle of their careers who potentially were, were not trained in digital or software architecture uh, or any software based uh, products during their time they went through their formal education whether that was at university school or college whereas now you know they're very experienced folk but they do not have necessarily the most up-to-date skills and knowledge to be able to perform those jobs to the best of their ability and therefore um, you know the, the doing something and really spreading the word on digitization is also incredibly important uh, for anyone in the post of uh, president of the IET for anyone who in fact is any one of those trustees or the council members or any ones of the full-time members of the IET you know that is what our day job is I hope that I will be looked back at you know reflected on as somebody who was energetic who um, you know told that storyline sold our strategy into which all of those things are integral parts of it uh, shone that light on spot on technicians and we're still running at the point I handed the baton over to my successor. Yeah, I, I, they're all very, very um, valiant causes. I think. I think. I think that's a, that's the the right term for them. Uh, but do you think? Do you think the IET needs to do more, or not just the IET, um, but all the professional institutions, the IET, the IMECI? need to do more have more of a joint effort to to entice engineers yeah I, I'm a person that has always uh, welcomed collaboration um, uh, coming back to a question that Nicoletta asked earlier about you know life in one's early career uh, one when one is in one's early career it's pretty much you it's you versus everyone else as it were and I think in any large organization, one after a period of time, you know, a few years, you work out that actually you can get more done by collaborating with people. And that you've got you are part of a team. You're not just a team leader of your little bit, that actually that team fits in another team, fits in another team, fits in an even bigger team, and that there's a team leader at the top of that. And so through collaboration, I absolutely believe one can go further because you can and faster because you can spread the load you can deal out jobs to more people get more done and therefore go faster in that overall front that you're trying to achieve so through collaboration could all of the professional engineering institutions do more if they were to work together I think inevitably my well my simple answer is yes of course the reality is they're all organizations in their own right and through STEM, we are all doing the right thing. Uh, we're all out there engaging with youngsters, uh, trying to encourage them to you know, work harder and enjoy science, to be curious about a career in engineering, and hopefully we'll all reap the benefits of that in years to come, as opposed to this country, like many other in the Western Hemisphere, having a shortfall in the number of engineers that are being trained each year out of colleges and out of universities. Um, so could we do it better? Yes, of course. Uh, each of those organisations is there for its own purposes. And when it does come to professional registration, we should also recognise that they have membership that are of a particular persuasion. So you mentioned the, I, you know, mm. the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. Those people are full of mechanical engineers who want to progress 
mechanical engineering activity and certainly that's the ones that they are really interested in when it comes to professionalization. Uh, we're blessed in the IET that indeed you know a few years ago when indeed we clearly were you know born of the electrical engineering persuasion uh, we changed our name and at the same time became a multidisciplinary um, uh, organization and I think you know I'm so pleased we have I'm so pleased that amongst all of the PEIs there is at least one if arguably not more that actually take on everyone um, and indeed are able as it were to look across and perhaps see the, the benefits and the disbenefits pros and cons of any argument so engineers are very logical people uh, I think everybody can see the fact that through collaboration we can do more and again it would be fair to say that the engineering institutions do actually come together um, there are meetings where they do come together and try and share ideas and hopefully um, support each other. We also have got clearly the Royal Academy of Engineering uh, who again uh, can actually channel many of the policy influence papers that are requested say by the government where indeed all of the PEIs can then forward you know, thoughts in help craft together that overall paper. So we do when it comes to influence I think we do work together um, when it comes to STEM, I think we're pretty well coordinated. Um, you know, could it be better? Yes, of course. Uh, would I like better collaboration? In my experience of my time at work, absolutely. But it doesn't mean they're all doing a bad job. They're all doing their absolute best with the resources they've got. And God bless them. Keep going. Pretty, pretty good answer, I think. <laughs> you have mentioned sustainability. Do you think it is possible to meet um, the deadline we've set ourselves for the sustainability goals? Um, really good, Nicoletta. I mean, you know, the $64 million question, really. I think the reality is we've got to go faster than we're currently doing. I think all of us hoped that more would come out of COP26. Um, although, actually, for many of us, you know, did we even know that COP23, 22, 21 even existed? So, you know, it came into our radar, clearly when the problem is getting bigger, publicity on green technology, green engineering and better sustainable outcomes, you know, is never been higher. And all of a sudden we've got it in Glasgow within our country, as it were, within the United Kingdom. Um, you know, what came out of it? I think we're all probably a little disappointed that there wasn't as radical um, a uh, commitment to lower carbon fuels and use of carbon fuels and to make that difference from a sustainability perspective. Um, I think all of us were disappointed. The reality is, do I think we can meet the targets? Um, I've yet to meet anybody that thinks we can meet the targets uh, as they currently stand against the current level of efforts that are actually being put in. I think what we've all got to do is we've got to do our absolute best of what we can do. And, it, and that comes back to every single person. I am absolutely, you know, all over um, home, domestic um, uh, segregation of waste. So we recycle just everything. You know, I go through the bins and we sort it all out at home. You know, it, it sounds crazy. Uh, you know, one is one person going to make a difference? The reality is every single person, if they make a difference in how they go about their lives, ultimately can make the difference that all of us need across the entire world. Or our, our planet is, is, it needs repairing. Um, it is not yet fully broken, mm. thank God. 
thank goodness we've got some time but I don't think currently no I do not believe we will meet the targets unless we all do more and that's where I think engineers have such a large part to play in terms of taking the ideas that scientists or technologists have come up with but actually when you employ them that's when you suddenly realize it's not quite as good in practice as indeed it was in theory so can we make it it needs to be working faster it needs to be bigger it needs to do more that's when engineers are going to come into their own and that's when engineers are truly going to make the difference we are making that difference every day but we've got to do we've got to do more if you could give some advice to a young julian um or, or, or young juliet um if they're listening uh what, what would you give them um i think my advice uh, within from an engineering perspective is to consider engineering as an exceptionally worthwhile profession um, it's not for everyone but certainly what I would like to think is that uh, all youngsters in the future will have the opportunity to learn a little more about science, um, to, you know, to be um, encouraged to be curious about their surroundings and to understand how things work. And if that really excites them, then that there will be the opportunities from you know, the careers masters that have spoken to me in the past or most importantly other influences around them will give them the opportunity to pursue what they want to uh, at school, at college or at university uh, or in apprenticeships uh, to become an engineer. Uh, it's an exceptionally worthwhile and satisfying career, solving problems. And indeed, if you're a half decent one, you truly have a job for life. What is there not to like about it? That is, that is a very good piece of advice. Um, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Julian, for your Thank time. Thank you. It's been very, very interesting. Well, that, that's that, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you for asking the questions. It would be fair to say you didn't really stick to the question list, but that that was fine. Um, <laughs> we tried. We tried. We tried. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engineering Stories podcast. We hope it's given you some insight into another area of engineering. If you're still here at this point, we must be doing something right. So stay tuned for the next guest, and in the meantime. Share this episode with your friends and family and don't forget to subscribe.